Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings Podcast, where I share in-depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back, and prepare to be scared. In 1842, Charles Dickens met Edgar Allan Poe in Philadelphia. Dickens was on a reading tour at the time, and Poe had often praised his works in book reviews and magazine articles. Although we don't know what the two talked about when they met, we would hope that their conversation turned to the writings they were working on at the time. Poe's masterpiece, The Mask of the Red Death, had just been published that year, and Dickens was about to start work on a new story that coincidentally would contain more than its share of ghosts. The story? A Christmas Carol, of course. Today, 180 years later, A Christmas Carol remains one of the most beloved stories of all time. But what most people don't realize is that besides Marley's ghost and the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, the book contains references to a variety of paranormal phenomena, some of which weren't even known at the time of its writing. So turn off your lights. Sit back and join me as I explore the paranormal in Dickens' masterpiece, A Christmas Carol. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is without a doubt the most well-known ghost story ever written. It tells the tale of Ebenezer Scrooge, a miserable, miserly old man who is cruel to everyone he meets and who hates Christmas. When A Christmas Carol first came out, people couldn't get enough of it. Dickens self-published the book on December 19, 1843, and by Christmas Eve, all 6,000 copies had sold out. By the end of the following year, 13 editions had been released to keep up with the demand. Since that time, the book has never been out of print. Dickens began giving public readings of A Christmas Carol in 1853, and it was so well received that he would go on to perform it more than 100 times. Audiences never tired of hearing him tell the story, and he continued performing readings of the tale right up to the time of his death in 1870. One reason for the book's instant popularity is because it is chock full of ghosts. Why would anyone be interested in reading a ghost story at Christmas, you ask? Well, the telling of ghost stories at Christmas time was a wildly popular Victorian tradition. Back then, the custom of getting together on Christmas Eve to tell ghost stories was as much a part of Christmas as Santa Claus is for us today. Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol as a story that would be told as a holiday ghost story. In fact, the real title of the book is A Christmas Carol in prose, being a ghost story of Christmas. Now ask anyone how many ghosts there are in A Christmas Carol, and people will say four. Marley's ghost and the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. But in reality, the story has just one ghost. Now calm down, 
I know I'm going against tradition here, but let me explain. A ghost is the spirit of someone who is once alive and who returns to the land of the living for one reason or another. Marley is the only spirit who had ever been alive in the story, so he's really the only ghost. The other three are more akin to guardian angels or spirit guides. And here's another thing. When Marley warns Scrooge that he'll be visited by the ghostly trio, he doesn't refer to them as ghosts. His exact words are, You will be haunted by three spirits. Now, it's interesting to note that Dickens capitalizes the words three and spirits the way one would capitalize the word God. I believe he did this to alert the reader that these are heavenly beings rather than actual ghosts. And if you need more proof, the titles of the first few chapters are The First of the Three Spirits, The Second of the Three Spirits, and The Last of the Spirits. So Dickens wanted to make it clear that the spirits who visited Scrooge weren't ghosts. But when Scrooge meets these spirits, they refer to themselves as ghosts. Now why is this? Well, remember, Dickens called his book a ghost story of Christmas. He wanted to keep the tradition of telling ghost stories during the holidays, so the three spirits were given the title of ghosts to adhere to this tradition. Now, let's take a closer look at these three spirits. Uh, I mean ghosts. And what better place to begin than with the ghost of Jacob Marley, Scrooge's business partner who died on Christmas Eve seven years earlier. A Christmas carol opens with the words, Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. He goes on to say that Marley was dead as a doornail, an expression we've all heard before and one that has interesting origins. William Langland first used the phrase in his poem Peer Plowman, written in 1377. Shakespeare also used it in Henry IV Part II. It's thought that dead as a doornail comes from the manner in which carpenters would hammer nails into a door. Clenching is the practice of hammering a nail nearly all the way in, then bending the protruding end over and hammering it into the wood. Carpenters did this to make the bond between the nail and the board stronger. Nails were expensive, and they were often pulled out of old buildings and reused. But a nail that's been clenched can never be used again, so it's considered dead. Now, speaking of dead... We first encounter Marley's ghost when the knocker on Scrooge's front door is transformed into Marley's face. Scrooge describes the face as looking like his business partner looked in life, but that there was a glow about it and its hair was stirred as if by breath or hot air. But as soon as Scrooge sees this face, it suddenly becomes a knocker again. Now this is a common description of ghost sightings. The appearance of a ghost is often instantaneous, vivid, and very brief. The ghostly action really begins when Scrooge is in his room sitting in front of the fireplace eating dinner. Marley announces his coming by making various sounds. First, a bell in the room starts to ring, then all of the bells in the house begin to ring. Next, a booming sound is heard coming from the cellar, after which he hears the sound of dragging chains on the floor below him. The sound comes up the stairs until it's finally at Scrooge's door. 
Marley's noisy entrance is similar to the sounds heard during real hauntings. The sound of phantom footsteps, of doors or cabinets opening and closing on their own, and of heavy objects being dragged across the floor are common signs of paranormal activity. Why do ghosts make noise? To let the living household members know that they're there. They might rattle things around to express their distaste that someone is living in their house. But more often than not, the sounds they make are actually a cry for help. Ghosts remain on Earth for a variety of reasons. They may not realize that they're dead, they may have stayed behind because they were concerned for their loved ones, or they were afraid to go to the other side because they weren't very good in life and they were afraid that they'd go to hell. In any case, they don't know how to leave. They logically assume that the only people who might be able to help them are the people now living in their house. Now what would you do if you were invisible and you wanted to let someone know that you were there? You'd slam doors, push books off of shelves, throw glasses, slam kitchen cabinets. You'd make noise. And that's just what Marley did. Now when Marley finally stops rattling his chains, he comes into the room and tells Scrooge that he has roamed the earth for seven long years. The heavy chain he wears represents his selfishness and lack of compassion during his lifetime. We can think of Marley as being in a type of purgatory, a place where souls who are not yet free from sin are purified before they're admitted to heaven. Now Marley's not the only spirit in this purgatory-like place. At the end of the chapter, he leads Scrooge to a window where he sees that the air is filled with lost souls and all are fettered by long chains. All of them are desperately trying to help the living who are in need, but they're unable to. When Scrooge sees Marley, he describes him looking exactly the way he did in life. As he stares at the ghost, he observes, The same face, the very same face. Marley in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights and boots. There's an interesting theory about why ghosts appear to the living looking the same way they did in life, right down to their clothing. A ghost doesn't have a physical body, so it really has no need for clothing. And yet, they're usually described as being fully dressed in clothing appropriate to the period of time they lived. This is because when we see a ghost, we are picking up on the image that they're projecting of themselves, the way that they remember themselves looking when they were alive. Interestingly, some ghosts appear to look younger than they did in life. This is because they're remembering themselves at their best, their happiest and their healthiest. Now, in spite of the fact that Scrooge knows that Marley's ghost is there before him, he still refuses to believe it. In fact, he has a long discussion with Marley about why he doesn't believe in him. He's terrified of the ghost, but he tries to reason it away. Marley finally convinces him that he's real, but later on he's still torn between it being real and just a dream. This is typical of most people who have had ghost sightings. They write them off as being just their imagination, a trick of the eye, or a hallucination. They refuse to believe what's right in front of their eyes. After Marley leaves, the first of the three ghosts arrives, the ghost of Christmas past. 
When Scrooge sees him, he asks, Who and what are you? This is because the ghost is so strange-looking. He appears to be a child, but at the same time he looks like a very old man. He has long white hair, but his face is free of wrinkles. The robe he's wearing is pure white, bound with a lustrous shining belt and trimmed with summer flowers. Dickens writes that his feet and arms are bare, and the implication is that he's naked under his robe. The ghost's legs and feet are described as being delicately formed, but his arms and hands are long and very muscular. In one hand, he holds a branch of green holly. Dickens includes holly because we always associate the plant with Christmas, but where did this tradition come from? In Celtic mythology, holly was considered to be highly sacred and was thought to have magic powers. It also symbolizes peace and goodwill and is a symbol of fertility and eternal life. The ancient druids wore holly in their hair because they believed it offered protection against evil spirits. And in ancient Rome, it was thought that holly offered protection from witches, and the wood from a holly plant was often used to make magic wands. In Christianity, the thorny holly leaves represented the crown of thorns, and the red berries symbolized the blood of Christ. Now, getting back to the ghost, one of the strangest things about his appearance is that he has a jet of bright light coming from the crown of his head. He holds a cap under his arm that he uses to extinguish this light. The light causes the ghost's shape to shift, and at times it appears to be a totally different being. This ability to radically change one's appearance by morphing from one form to another is known as shapeshifting. The most well-known shapeshifters in folklore and literature are vampires and werewolves. In Greek mythology, shapeshifting was a popular punishment from the gods to humans who crossed them. There are far too many examples to mention here, but a short list includes people who are turned into roosters, lizards, lynx, spiders, owls, stags, weasels, cats, lions, cattle, birds, bears, and flies. Now, when it comes time for the ghost to show Scrooge scenes from his past, he does so by grasping Scrooge by the arm. By touching the ghost, Scrooge gains the superpower of being able to travel like a spirit. This ability to gain power or special abilities from another person by touching them comes from a folk belief called the Law of Contagion. This law holds that when two people or objects come in contact with each other, there is the potential for an exchange of properties between them. So when Scrooge touches the ghost of Christmas past, he gains the ability to travel the same way the spirit does, and the two are instantly transported to the countryside where Scrooge grew up, then to various scenes from his past pre-selected by the ghost. These visions are remarkably similar to the life reviews reported by those who have had near-death experiences. During NDEs, many people claim that they witness their entire lives flash in front of them like a movie. They not only relive all of these moments as if they're actually there, they also feel and understand how their actions affected others. When Scrooge is shown his past, it's the only time before his conversion that we see him truly happy. 
seeing himself as a young man, and getting to relive the Christmas party thrown by old Fezziwig, his first employer, fills him with absolute joy. But with the good comes the bad, and he's also forced to relive painful times, like when he was left alone at boarding school during Christmas, and when his fiancée, Belle, broke off their engagement. Scrooge is not only able to review his own past, he's able to see other people's pasts as well. He's shown a scene of Belle's past, or of her present, we're not really sure, but he sees her as an older woman at home with her daughter and grandchildren. When Belle's husband arrives, he tells her that he saw Scrooge sitting in his office quite alone in the world. Scrooge begs the spirit to remove him from this heartbreaking scene. Just before it leaves, the spirit shapeshifts again. It looks upon Scrooge with a face in which some strange way there were fragments of all the faces it had shown him. The next ghost we're introduced to is the Ghost of Christmas Present. Dickens based this character on Father Christmas, the ancient figure associated with the English Christmas holiday, not to be confused with Santa Claus, who wasn't known in England until after 1850. The ghost wears a simple, deep green robe bordered with white fur, and like the ghost of Christmas past, he is naked under his robe. Now, it's interesting that Dickens makes special note of the fact that this ghost's feet are bare. He did the same thing with the ghost of Christmas past. Why did the author feel that this was so important? Well, throughout history, holy men are always depicted as being barefoot. Jesus is always shown as being barefoot in paintings and on stained glass windows. Buddha and Krishna are also depicted as being barefoot in paintings and statues. In the Bible, we read that Moses was told to remove his sandals when in the presence of God because the ground he stood on was holy. So bare feet are a sign of being sacred. The ghosts of Christmas past and present are described as being barefoot because they are sacred spiritual beings who trace their lineage directly back to Jesus. We know this because of the way the ghost of Christmas present refers to his age. He tells Scrooge that he has more than 1,800 brothers, all of whom came before him. The story takes place in the 1800s, so the ghost is suggesting that a new Christmas spirit has been born each year since Christ's birth, 1,800 years earlier. But getting back to the ghost of Christmas present, you'll have to forgive me one more time for bursting the bubble of tradition because I'm going to throw a wrench in the works here. Whereas the ghosts of Christmas past showed Scrooge events that actually took place in the past, the ghost of Christmas present doesn't show Scrooge events that are taking place in the present. The ghost of Christmas present appears in Scrooge's apartment at 2 a.m., and he leads him to London, where they stand in the city streets on Christmas morning. They watch men shoveling snow off the rooftops and shopkeepers getting ready to open. Now it's possible that everyone is stocking their stores at 2 a.m. in order to open early on Christmas morning, but what comes next is the first indication that we're really seeing a scene that takes place after sunrise. Dickens writes that the steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes, 
and there emerged from scores of streets innumerable people carrying their dinners to baker's shops. Now, people certainly are not going to church or buying Christmas dinners at 2 a.m. Likewise, when the ghost takes Scrooge to look in on the Cratchit household, Bob and Tiny Tim have just come back from church. The family is cooking their Christmas meal and talking about the day to come. Again, this has to take place much later than 2 a.m. At the end of the visit to the Cratchits, Dickens writes, By this time it was getting dark and snowing pretty heavily. Groups of people fill the streets on their way to family gatherings, and a lamplighter is lighting the street lamps. The clearest indication that these are scenes from the future is revealed when the ghost takes Scrooge to the miner's hut on the moors. Dickens writes, Down to the west, the setting sun had left a streak of fiery red, which glared upon the desolation for an instant, like a sullen eye, and frowning lower, lower, lower yet, was lost in the thick gloom of darkest night. So the ghost of Christmas present doesn't show Scrooge scenes from the actual present, but rather scenes from a probable future. And there's a good reason for this. It has to do with the paranormal belief that we have the ability to influence the future by making changes in the present. To understand this, we need to take a look at divination. There are many different methods of divination that people practice. These include the reading of tarot cards and tea leaves, interpreting passages from the I Ching, making astrological charts, and reading runes, just to name a few. What most people don't understand is that these methods don't actually predict the future. They show the likely outcome if a person continues along the path they're currently on. This belief that a person can change the future is the whole point of A Christmas Carol. More than 50 years before H.G. Wells wrote The Time Machine, Dickens was toying with the possibility of time travel. Although the plasticity of time in his story was the result of divine intervention rather than science, his clever use of time as a literary device paved the way for science fiction writers. In A Christmas Carol, when the ghosts are making their rounds, time behaves very strangely. Marley tells Scrooge that he'll be visited by three ghosts, the first at 1 a.m., the second at 2 a.m., and the third at 3 a.m. When the first ghost arrives, Scrooge wakes up to the sound of the clock striking twelve. He's totally confused. Twelve, he says. It was past two when I went to bed. But he couldn't have gone to bed at 2 a.m. because that's when the second ghost was to appear. When the ghost of Christmas past finally arrives at 1 a.m., time seems to behave for a while, but not for long. After the ghost leaves, Scrooge wakes up in anticipation of the second ghost's arrival. But he doesn't wake up at 2 a.m., he wakes up at 1 a.m. But wait a minute, he was just with the ghost of Christmas past at 1 a.m. Scrooge counts down the time until 2 a.m., and the ghost of Christmas present finally shows up. Now just when you thought the time was behaving itself, it starts acting zany again. When the ghost of Christmas yet to come makes his appearance, we read, The bell struck twelve. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, 
he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley, and lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. Now wait a minute. The ghost of Christmas past came at 1 a.m., and the ghost of Christmas present showed up at 2 a.m., so the clock couldn't have struck 12. And wasn't the third ghost supposed to show up at 3 a.m.? That's right, he was. But apparently, he shows up at midnight instead. What's more, 3 a.m. is never mentioned at all in the chapter about the ghost of Christmas yet to come. So what's going on here? When Scrooge is in the presence of the ghosts, which we've already determined are spiritual beings, the confines of the physical world no longer exist. Time doesn't really exist in the spiritual realms, so when it's viewed through the eyes of a physical being, it appears to behave strangely. In the Bible, spiritual time is described this way, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. If we consider time in a more scientific light, we can look to physics, where time is said to be a property resulting from the existence of matter. But in the world Scrooge enters when he's with the ghosts, there is no matter. We know this because he can fly through the air, pass through walls, and travel through time. And because there is no matter, time doesn't really exist. And now for the piece de resistance. We finally meet the bogeyman of the story, the shrouded, ominous, silent ghost of Christmas yet to come. In describing this spirit, Dickens writes, It was shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. This ghost is very different from the two that came before him. For one thing, the ghost of Christmas yet to come is the only spirit who isn't described as being barefoot, because although he is a spiritual being, he's closer to death than life. Another difference has to do with the way this spirit allows Scrooge to travel with him. If you remember, in order to go from one place to another with the ghosts of Christmas past and present, Scrooge touched their garments. But Scrooge doesn't touch this creature at all. Instead, he rides the shadow of this hideous specter. And lastly, whereas the other two ghosts talked up a storm, this ghost doesn't say a single word. The ghost of Christmas yet to come is clearly based on the Grim Reaper, a harbinger of death, a collector of souls. The earliest appearance of the name Grim Reaper is found in the 1847 book by August Tholuck called The Circle of Human Life. Although A Christmas Carol was published three years earlier, Dickens would have been aware that depicting death as a black-hooded skeletal figure was common in European folklore. The ghost of Christmas yet to come shows Scrooge scenes of things that may occur if he continues along the path he's on. The first is a Christmas morning sometime in the future. Scrooge sees people he knows talking in groups, but he's not really interested in them. He's looking for himself. Dickens writes, For he had an expectation that the conduct of his future self would give him the clue he missed. By now, it's blatantly obvious to the reader that everyone is talking about Scrooge's death, 
But he's totally oblivious. It doesn't even enter his mind that he might be dead. In fact, he thinks he doesn't see himself because he hopes that his future self might have changed his ways. Next, Scrooge is taken to a pawn shop in a seedy part of town, and he listens in on a group of people selling things to the store owner. One woman brings a large bundle that contains bed curtains with the rings still on them, a blanket, and a shirt. We learn that she stole these things from the room of a corpse and that she actually took the shirt off of him as he lay dead in bed. We read that Scrooge listened to this dialogue in horror and that he viewed them with a detestation and disgust which could hardly have been greater if they were selling the corpse itself. Scrooge is still unaware that he is the corpse that they're speaking of, but his attitude is interesting. I imagine that had the ghost of Christmas yet to come been the first of the three spirits, Scrooge would have had an entirely different outlook on this scene. The old Scrooge was stingy, miserly, and practical. He would probably have agreed that the bed curtains were of no use to a corpse, nor were the blankets. As for the shirt being stolen off its back, well, what does it matter what he's buried in? The fact that he's so affected by the way these crude people are dishonoring a dead man means that Scrooge has started becoming a better person already. Next, Scrooge is taken to his bedroom where the body of his future self lies cold and dead, covered by a sheet. Dickens describes the body as plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, and uncared for. A cat is scratching at the door, and rats are gnawing beneath the floorboards, seemingly anxious to set to work on eating the corpse. Remarkably, Scrooge doesn't recognize the room as his own. He also doesn't think for a minute that the body can be his. In fact, he seems incapable of seeing it as himself. It's almost as if being in the presence of the three ghosts immersed him so deeply in the spirit world that he's out of touch with the physical world. Once again, here's another similarity to the near-death experience. After death, many people report seeing themselves lying dead, but they often say that they feel emotionally detached from their body. They view it as an object that has nothing to do with them. It has no meaning to them. Like the NDE Life Review, The Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come shows Scrooge how his life has affected others. He's taken to the home of a man who owes him money and learns that the man is glad that he's dead and gone. Then he's taken to Bob Cratchit's home where he learns that Tiny Tim has died, the implication being that the family's poverty was responsible for his death and that Scrooge was the cause of their poverty. It's not until Scrooge is shown his own grave that he puts all the pieces together. It's as if his eyes are finally opened and he finally realizes that he was the dead man lying on the bed and that no one cared one bit about him in life or in death. When he finally wakes to find that he's not dead, his entire outlook on life changes. It's not just that he was frightened into changing his ways. His experience with these spiritual beings reconnected him with his higher self. He knows a truth about life that he didn't know before. He immediately sets out to make things right. 
he buys the biggest turkey he can find and sends it to Bob Cratchit's family. On the street, he sees a man who had asked for donations for the poor and that he had turned out of his shop. He offers to donate a large sum of money to the cause. He goes to church, then walks along the streets the rest of this Christmas day, talking to people and observing all the joy around him. He shows up to his nephew's house for Christmas, raises Bob Cratchit's salary, and in time, he becomes like a second father to Tiny Tim. A Christmas Carol is one of the most joyous books ever written. If you've never read it before, well, it's high time that you did. I can think of no better way to end this podcast than by reading the last few sentences of the book. They tell us about the new Scrooge, the man he became after learning the truth about life thanks to the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. Dickens wrote, And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that truly be said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow me and leave a comment. To contact me, use the email address listed in the program notes. I'm Barry Pirro, and this is Haunted Happenings. (laughs) ¶¶